thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, new ways to spot cancers much sooner, repair nerve injuries, and also fix hip arthritis. We're looking at several major medical breakthroughs that are waiting to happen. Plus, in the news, how advertisers can profile your personality online to boost their sales, and scientists dig up evidence of winemaking from 8,000 years ago. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up this week, antibiotics are at the top of the agenda. It's been World Antibiotic Awareness Week, and as the WHO have put it on their website, the world is running out of antibiotics. We need to take action to protect human health. And right on cue, researchers at the University of Birmingham have used a new technique to uncover a host of potential new targets against which we might be able to produce new antibiotics to stem the rising tide of resistance. David Granger told me what they've been doing. The issue that we were interested in were the mechanisms that bacteria can use to protect themselves from antibiotics. One of the mechanisms that we've known about is a pump kind of mechanism. So if you imagine a sinking ship taking on water, a bit like a bacterial cell taking on antibiotics, uh, a common mechanism is just to pump the water out of the boat, as it were, so the the bacteria can pump the antibiotics out of the cell. So that was was something we knew about, but we had an an inkling that it was probably more complicated than that uh, and that other things were happening at the same time and we wanted to try and figure out Uh, what those other things were. So bacteria don't just resort to one solution when someone throws antibiotics at them. You're saying there's probably multiple things that they do, one of which is to get rid of the antibiotic from within their cells, but there are others. Yes, certainly. So, I mean, bacteria very seldom rely on one line of defence. Broadly, you often find that they've got, you know, multiple levels of of a defence or a certain system to deal with the problem. So they're very resilient. And what did you do to try and unpick, apart from pumping things out of their cells, what else bacteria can do? So we use a technique which is called chromatin immunoprecipitation. And I guess you could think about it a a little bit like a molecular fishing line. And we can use that molecular fishing line to hook out genes from the bacterial genome that are important for antibiotic resistance. An issue is that, okay, we can sequence bacterial chromosomes, we can find out what all the genes are, but what we really need to know are which out of those thousands of genes, which are the handful of genes that are important for antibiotic resistance, and that's where this kind of molecular fishing rod came in, so we could hook out the important genes and then work out exactly what they were doing. And what genes did you fish for? We fished for genes that were a target for a protein called the multiple antibiotic resistance activator. 
that sounds complicated, but it's not. What this protein basically does is switch on the genes that you need uh, to resist certain antibiotics. So by targeting these genes, we could just identify the genes that we were interested in. I see. So this gene turns on when it sees some antibiotics and that in turn triggers lots of defence mechanisms all at once by this master switch. So if you follow the scent of, of what that master switch is turning on, you can then work out what mechanisms the cell is invoking to defend itself. Yes, that's exactly right. And what did you flush out? We got, um, I think it was just over 30 genes of interest and Two of them we focused on in detail. So going back to the analogy of a sinking ship, one of the set of genes that we identified was important for kind of plugging holes in the cell. So if you imagine the cell surface as being like the hull of a boat that's got holes in, that's letting in water or in case in the case of the cell letting in antibiotics, one of these gene systems, these sets of genes, was able to help plug those holes and stop the antibiotics from getting into the cell the other set of genes that we identified were important for repairing the DNA. So some antibiotics work by damaging the bacterial DNA. And we found that one of the sets of genes was important for repairing the damage that was caused. And why does this help us in our present milieu of facing an antibiotic apocalypse as some people have described it where we're worried that in the future we may have no drugs left to treat things why does what you found here help us to meet that challenge well what we can probably do is that now we we know about these defense mechanisms we can start to perhaps make new drugs that can target the defense mechanisms so if you knock out or hinder one of the defense mechanisms that would we would expect make the bacteria more sensitive to certain antibiotics so for example if you take uh, the genetic system that's important for blocking the holes in the surface of the cell you can imagine that if you could hinder that system it might allow antibiotics to get into the cell more easily uh, it might allow uh, different types of antibiotics to get into the cell more easily perhaps ones that couldn't get in there beforehand, things like that. So what we would like to do is target these defence systems and, and see if we can stop them from working. And is that easy to do? Because is that not what antibiotic researchers have been trying to do ever since Flory and Fleming first came up with penicillin? These are, are new targets that we won't have searched for drugs to hit before. They're new systems that we can screen for drugs against. And let's hope they can find a few. That was David Granger, and the work he was discussing has just been published in the journal Nature Communications. Now, are you a wine buff with a penchant for a more mature vintage? If so, you may be interested to hear that archaeologists working in Georgia have discovered the world's oldest evidence of imbibing. Shards of pottery dating back about 8,000 years have turned up with wine residue still stuck to them. Georgia Mills spoke to their discoverer, Andrew Graham. What we have discovered is something that many people have suspected for quite some time uh, from a, for a number of reasons, but that we have in the Shumo-Shulaveri culture in the Republic of Georgia during the Neolithic, the earliest evidence of wine production in the world. If you want to use round numbers, we'll say 6,000 BC, so 8,000 years ago. So we pushed the earliest evidence of wine back about 1,000 years by this discovery. What did you find and how do you know it's evidence of, of wine? Uh, Pat McGovern, who is one of our colleagues and down in the United States, Pat developed a process by which to look at the residue 
left by wine on ceramic vessels. Um, and one of the um, important things is, you have to remember, is tartaric acid. So tartaric acid is produced in the process of making wine. Um, so he developed a process by which he would look at the absence or presence of tartaric acid on the inside of ceramic vessels. Um, we also test the surrounding soil, so we can also test for if there is tartaric evidence acid in the soil in high amounts, it wouldn't be a good sample because you could argue that the tartaric acid on the pottery is a remnant of the tartaric acid that is present in the soil. So looking at the soil and the residue gives us the, the, the fact that the presence of the tartaric acid means that they were storing wine or wine was in this pottery vessel. Just thinking about what I'm like, how do we know these people just didn't leave grapes out too long by mistake? Do we know they intentionally wanted to make this drink? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's we've used other lines of evidence. I mean, uh, looking at the pottery specifically and the type of pottery it is, looking at the iconography on the pottery. One of the things that is on all of the news wires that's going out, you know, the there is a famous ceramic vessel from uh, the Neolithic site of Haramis Didi Gora in Georgia. And it's a, you know, an iconographic representation of a cluster of grapes on the rim of the ceramic vessel. And of all of the range of symbols and um, images they could represent on their pottery, they chose to represent grapes. And to make wine that's drinkable and en masse to be able to provide for many people, you can't just leave it out Anybody who's left a, a glass of grape juice out knows that it doesn't necessarily turn to wine, it'll turn to vinegar. Do we understand how they made the wine? No, because what we have is just the residue, the evidence of the process. What we don't have is we don't have a production facility. We don't have where they were actually making and storing the wine during this period. So they were making and storing it somewhere. We just don't know exactly where. Oh, wow, are you holding out hope you might discover a, <laughs> a very aged vintage? Well, I will say, in any archaeologist listening to this program, there's an axiom in archaeology that on any field project, um, your greatest discoveries or the greatest challenges that you have normally appear on the last day. And certainly uh, on our excavations last summer, on the very last day of excavation, we were cleaning for site photos, et cetera, and one of our students and Georgian colleagues was being a bit vigorous in their cleaning and, and did a little bit of excavation and uncovered the top of what appears to be a fully intact vessel. And so we're like, because mm, usually what we found on this site thus far are fragments of vessels. Well, unfortunately, we had to rebury it because we just didn't have the time to excavate it. So it's, it's, it's a treat waiting for whoever's the lucky square supervisor to excavate next summer. Oh, wow, you reburied this <laughs> this pot. Yeah, well, we didn't rebury it. We just covered it, you know. We we put material on top of it and then we covered that with soil. We know where it is. No one else knows where it is. And uh <laughs> we'll go and recover it. Brilliant. I hope you, I hope it's still there when you go back. <laughs> me 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 too. Looting looting is an issue in all countries. Uh we're very fortunate, however, the local communities around where we work we have a problem of the local herders running their cows through our site, leaving us little treats every day as they uh, <laughs> move their cows through. But they keep an eye on things for us, and, and so we're pretty, we're pretty confident that everything will be as it is when we return. Well, let's hope so. That was Andrew Graham from the University of Toronto, and those findings were announced this week in the journal PNAS. 
Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the Naked Scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, the Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come, the scientist hoping to revolutionise cancer diagnosis and the man who's built a personal jetpack and blasted his way into the Guinness Book of World Records. Before that... If you have a presence on the internet with a page on Facebook, for example, every time you use it, you leave behind digital footprints that reveal an enormous amount about your personality. Because what you tend to like looking at is being logged. And now researchers have shown that advertisers can use this freely available data to tailor-make adverts that make you 50% more likely to click on their products. David Stilwell is one of the authors on the new study. David, how did you do this? We previously showed just liking things on Facebook can say a lot about you. They can say, how intelligent are you? What is your personality? What makes you unique? So what we are asking in this study is, given that it's possible to show those very, very personal things about you, how can companies use this to advertise better? And how worried should we be as consumers um, in terms of privacy? So if I see something on Facebook and I click like against it, you can extract data from what I have liked or chosen specifically to flag up as of interest to me to begin to make deductions about my personality and my likely life choices. Exactly. So if you like, for example, on Facebook, computers, then obviously you can sell computers to that person. But actually it shows something more sort of personal, which is that people who like computers tend to be introverted. Um, which means even if you're selling something that isn't anything to do with computers, you can use the fact that you know someone is more likely to be introverted to sell products in a way that means they're more likely to be interested. How have you proved that that's the case? So what we did is we worked with a few different companies who were running adverts on Facebook, and we got them to target those adverts at people who we knew were more likely to be introverted or extroverted based on their Facebook likes. And then we changed the adverts to either appeal to introverts or extroverts. So, for example, we worked with a cosmetics company and we had an extroverted advert, Dance Like No One's Watching. So it was a picture of a woman in a club. She's sort of got her hands in the air. She's dancing around and everyone's looking at her because she's the center of attention. And that's the ideal for an extrovert. So then we had a different advert for introverts. This was beauty doesn't have to shout. So it's a woman looking in a mirror. It's about her own opinion of herself. It's not about what anyone else thinks. And this is what an introvert looks for. And you know that, do you? That extroverts will engage better with the extroverted type advert introverts with their focused advert. Exactly. So that's the theory. What we found from um, targeting these adverts is when the extroverts see the extroverted ad, then they are 40% more likely to click and they buy 50% more stuff. Um, Same thing with the introverts, but when they see the introverted ad. So when you tailor the type of advert that a person sees to the personality of the potential buyer they're much more likely to engage with the advert and and to complete the sale. I mean, haven't advertisers known this for donkey's ages, though? I mean, this is not new, is it, or is it? 
So, so what's different here is that whereas previously you, you might have a sort of a, an ideal consumer in mind, if you're putting an advert on television, then everyone who sees that advert sees the same advert. Um, but now with micro-targeting on social networks or the internet in general, um, you can advertise to a specific person uh, given that you've made a prediction about that specific person. So you're really seeing a very personalized advert to you as an individual. I suppose in some respects that may be beneficial because it means that I see things that I'm more likely to want to engage with more of the time. You could use that for good because you could show me positive health messages. For instance, if you wanted to target someone who was at risk of depression, for example, or mental illness, you could focus your advertising at that person and reach a person who, who needed that help. could be exploited by nefarious operators, though, couldn't it? Exactly. So what we're saying is that you can essentially persuade someone better, given that you've got all this information about them that comes from the internet. So you can persuade people to do things that are in their benefit. So, you know, encourage people to save money, encourage people to, uh, you know, take advantage of a pension. You can also persuade them to do things that are not in their benefit. So if you notice that someone is sort of has an addictive personality, you might try to sell them um, gambling products. And that is not going to be in their interest. And the data that you were exploiting on these users on Facebook, because looking at your paper, it was huge numbers, like 3 million people is the sample size that you've looked at. That data is freely available. It's just out there. You can extract that as a third party. Exactly. So any advertiser can go on Facebook and target people who like a specific single product. Um, so that's what we're doing here. So just given one like on Facebook, you're seeing a specific advert from us. But now imagine that, you know, you are Facebook or you are Google and you've got all this, all of the data about one individual. Then you can target adverts or products based on everything that someone likes, not just one thing. What does the legislation say about this? Is this legal? So what's interesting about the Data Protection Act in the UK and also the general data protection regulation that's coming in across Europe and coming to the UK in May next year is that's you know, one of the key planks is consent to share your information. Um, but what's missing here is the fact that I click on an advert I am now telling that advertiser that I am an extroverted person or an intelligent person or, you know, or whatever information. And I don't even realize what information I'm giving away by clicking on an advert. I've never consented to give that information away. I've just clicked it and I don't even know who that advert is targeted at. So I don't know what information I've just given away. David, thank you very much. That's David Stilwell from the University of Cambridge. The paper he was discussing, he's just published that in the journal PNAS. And now it's myth conception time, where we take dodgy science to task and Izzy Clark is on the case. You may have heard that we get a whole new body on a cellular level every seven years. A fresh start? Yes, please. Who cares how much you drank in your 20s? Before long, you'll have a whole new body with new cells and the damage should be written off, right? Wrong. Your cells are the fundamental building blocks of your body. You have about 37 trillion of them and around 200 different types. The cells on the inner lens of your eyes have been there since you were a fetus and the neurons on the outer layer of your brain, which plays a key role in memory, attention and language, to name a few, are never replaced. However, some cells in other parts of your body do regrow. Your skin cells, for example, refresh every two to three weeks, whilst the cells that line your gut are constantly bombarded with acidic gastric juices, so don't last more than three days. But how did we find out how long cells actually last in our body? 
The atmosphere naturally contains low levels of a radioactive form of carbon called carbon-14. But during the mid-1950s and early 1960s, nuclear weapon tests released large amounts of additional carbon-14 into the atmosphere, where it combined with oxygen to form carbon dioxide. Plants have been taking this in. We then eat the animals that eat the plants. And hey presto, this radioactive carbon-14 has worked its way into the DNA of our cells too. And because it happened at a very specific point in history, and we know how the levels of carbon-14 in the air have been changing since, scientists in Sweden have been able to use this so-called carbon-14 bomb bump to work out how old the cells in different parts of our bodies are because cells that are being replaced will have new DNA and hence a more recent carbon-14 fingerprint than a cell made longer ago. The scientists in Sweden found that the average cells in the intestines of an adult in their 30s were about 10 years old and skeletal muscle cells were about 15 years old, showing they'd been replaced several times since those individuals were born. The same test carried out on brain cells, though, showed that they were as old as the individual, so they weren't being replaced. And if you lose them, you won't get them back. So there we have it. While some cells do replace themselves over time, you're pretty much stuck with the body you've got. So look after it. And it took an atom bomb to prove that. Thank you very much, Izzy, for exploding that myth for us. And if there is some unreliable sounding science that you have come across and you'd like us to debunk it for you, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we will take a look. Now it's time to dip into the world of tech. A British inventor, Richard Browning, who's the founder of the company Gravity, has built a real-life jetpack and flown it across a lake, getting into the Guinness Book of Records in the process. With us is business angel Peter Cowley, who invests in technology startups. Peter, can you describe this suit for us? It looks like somebody who's on a, a motorbike racing track. Lots of protection, padding, etc. Because the chap is carrying six small jet engines or gas turbines. So each gas turbine, which has got an exhaust gas temperature of about 600 degrees centigrade, so you don't really want to get too close to it, is providing mm. an, enough thrust together, about 130 kilos, to lift him, his suit, and an amount of fuel with it. So he looks like something out of space, really. So he's got two on each arm and then two on his back to stabilize. Him. It sounds like something out of a comic book. Why make something like this? Well, because he's an inventor, I think, and he's just enjoyed doing that. He's found, I had a look on the internet, I find you can buy these gas turbines. They're about £2,500 each. Anybody can buy them. They, they take jet fuel, kerosene or paraffin. They generate thrust and they, they will then push you, lift you in the air. And if you point your arms backwards, they'll send you forwards. Amazing. Um, but he's also he's admitted that he wouldn't want to go too high because he has crashed a few times. So if you look on, on the videos, he's never more than about three two or three metres high. Yeah, I think on the on the video he got to about 32 miles an hour, yes, but then he went into the lake on one of the attempts. Well, this is great, actually, because that's a great land <laughs> place to land. In fact, there are two things he's working on. One is an airbag, so a crash bag, a bit like uh, horse riders have and, and skiers have. So that if he does crash, then you know he's less likely to damage himself. I think he's probably broken the bone as well. So you mentioned a little bit there, but what kind of novel engineering is required to make something like this? I think it's the most important thing is human courage, actually, which is 
he's an engineering <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, yes, you could buy the gas turbines. You attach them to yourself. He worked out how to do it in such a way that he's fairly stable. It hasn't got any auto balancing, so he's having to do that by learning. So the most important part, protection, of course, on these gas turbines. Otherwise, almost anybody could do it. Now, he's added things to that. So he's now got a head-up display because one of the things is if one of the gas turbines fuel supply is stopped, he's suddenly imbalanced and, of course, will almost certainly hit the ground then. Oh, oh dear. So with that in mind, are these likely to become commonplace, do you think? I doubt it, really, because A, for safety reasons, it's unlikely that people will be using them in case they fail. You certainly wouldn't want to drop from 50 metres, 100 metres up in the air. And secondly, remember, there's an exhaust gas there of five or 600 centigrade. Can you imagine what that's going to do if you get too close to something? Oh, dear. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like the ideal thing for a commute, potentially. If you're uh, no, stuck no, in a no. There are a number something. of um, battery-powered drones, uh, which is another way of looking at it. The great advantage of, of kerosene, it's actually the fuel density is very, very high. So you should, in principle, be able to go much further for a certain weight, because remember, he's got to carry the weight of the fuel, whether it's the batteries or the kerosene, than he would do with a drone. Now, this, and I think he says it in the video, it's a bit of an indulgent toy at the moment. But could this sort of tech have more serious and long-term applications? Absolutely true in that we will have some sort of personal transport through the air. I'm absolutely confident about that. And about a year ago, or earlier this year, I talked about a, a, a drone, a battery-powered drone in Dubai, which may, may happen or may not happen. So the personal transport, yes. Using kerosene-powered jet engines, Probably not. <laughs> I don't know, Richard. I'd happily talk to him on the telephone to find out what his view is. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Peter Cowley, for thank taking you. us through that thank tech. You. And if you would like to grab any more information about any of the news stories we have been discussing this week, including the references to the published papers, the full transcripts are on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash podcasts. You'll find the show and all of the show chapters are there. Now, in the next half hour, we're scanning the scientific horizon as we take a look at four projects promising to revolutionise healthcare in the next 10 years. These projects have all been recognised with large grants awarded by the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council as part of an £8 million initiative called the Healthcare Technologies Challenge Awards. Up first, esophageal cancer. Thousands of people are diagnosed each year with this disease. It's the 14th most common cancer in adults. It mostly affects older people and it tends to present late in the disease course, which can limit the options for treatment. But if we could detect it earlier, the likelihood is that outcomes would be much better. And that's the approach that Cambridge University's Sarah Bondike is taking. So what have you got in mind, Sarah? What we're thinking about is trying to augment the vision of the endoscopist. And what we mean by that is providing contrast for really early signs of cancer, which are currently uh, very, very difficult for the endoscopist to see. What's an endoscopist? An endoscopist is someone who uses a very long, thin, flexible tube to look inside the body. And they typically do this in a way that replicates what your eye could see if you were able to peer inside. So you have a, a camera. You've got one on, uh, on the table in front have, of me, I yes. presume. That's the thing in front of us. So this is a long tube. You're threading it down something. In this case, you'd thread it down someone's throat. And you'd, yeah. you'd be looking at the lining of the intestine or the esophagus. But critically, you'd be looking with what the human eye can see. 
That's exactly right. So normally we're looking uh, with a white light camera that has red, green and blue colour channels, just like we have red, green and blue cones in our eye. And that has strengths because we're able to see signs of cancer, macroscopic signs as, as disease is developing. But it also has weaknesses when the disease is at a very early stage. It's usually flat, so it looks it's quite close to the lining. And also it's often just a slightly different shade of pink from the normal tissue. So it makes it very difficult to spot with only three colour channels. What's your solution then? Our solution is to try to create what we call a multidimensional endoscope. So instead of just looking at three channels of colour, we look at a broad spectrum of colour beyond what the human eye can see. And in addition to looking at a wider range of colours of light, we also introduce other properties of light. So, for example, light has a property of angle, which is the angle at which it travels um, through the medium. And what we can do with our new technology is actually also measure the angle of the light. And all of these different properties interact with cancer in a different way than they interact with normal tissue. Um, So by picking all of them up, we hope that we'll be able to enhance the contrast and augment the vision of the endoscopist. Will this be a sort of laser source then? So when the surgeon does the or the the gastroenterologist does the endoscopy, they'll thread the tube down into the person. They can see what they're doing, but at the same time, you're able to inject, say, laser light or some other light source down the endoscope so it reflects all the way down, comes out the end, and they're then inspecting the lining of the esophagus with this extra light added. We can do more clever things with the existing light that they send down. They normally send just broadband light down um, and they bin it into these different channels. So we can already use the existing light source and collect more interesting properties from it. But as you say, we can also introduce additional light sources such as laser light, which uh, have nice properties in terms of how they travel into the esophagus. And by using that and pulling out additional information and combining those two things together, the endoscopist will have their normal white light image, which is easy for the eye to interpret. And what we'd really like to do is have an overlay which has a colour channel which has a, essentially a big arrow saying, you know, biopsy here, this is a suspicious area. I was going to say, are you going to sort of feed back onto the image that they're seeing what your system is interpreting? So it comes out of the endoscope, goes to a computer, that crunches through all the other information coming in and then represents that over the top of what the surgeon can see or the gastroenterologist can see in plain light and then you can highlight the bits that you want. That's exactly right. It's really important for adopting new technology into healthcare that you think about how it's going to fit into the existing standard of care. And if we're able to use that existing standard with the white light and feed in all of our information into one really useful image to the endoscopist, it just makes their workflow really, really easy, adds information and adds value. What is it about the cancer cells that means they're different in a way that you can see with these additional light investigations? There's actually a number of different things. The simplest one is just that the microstructure changes. If you imagine a normal tissue, it has a very ordered structure of cells. As the cells become abnormal, turn towards cancer, they proliferate more, which means they divide very rapidly. And that means they tend to push out and dislodge the normal tissue around. And that disorder will interact, for example, with laser light um, to depolarize the light, which means that it changes and removes the property of angle. And if we measure that angular property, we can see that change. But there are also other properties that change. For example, metabolism. Imagine if cells are dividing really rapidly, they need more energy to be able to do that. And there are certain molecules in the body that are related to their energy, which you can actually visualise using optics. And we can also probe those if we look at more colour channels. We had uh, Gareth Corbett on the programme a month or two back. He's a gastroenterologist. He's working on a camera you can swallow. 
And the idea is that rather than having to have tubes like the one you've got in front of you shoved where the sun don't shine, which isn't everyone's cup of tea, you can just swallow this thing and it makes its own way through your gastrointestinal tract, taking photos on its way through. And then it beams the pictures wirelessly to a belt that you carry. And then you bring that back to the hospital and the doctor can see all of the images as it made its way through you. And you don't even have to retrieve the camera. That's the other added bonus. Could you take your technology and engineer it into something like that so that you're not tied to an endoscope? Because obviously the the benefit of your approach is that you can perhaps pick up cancer earlier, but that's only as good as someone regularly getting investigated with an endoscopy, which isn't ideal, is it? The small device architecture of having a capsule is exactly compatible with our technology. And in fact, the project that's just been funded uh, develops a new set of optical filters which could be miniaturised and placed into a capsule format if we wanted to. For the esophagus, that's a bit of a challenge because when you swallow something, it moves really fast. It doesn't hang around. So you do have to think about how you can do that. And one approach is actually to put it on a tether. And other people have shown that if you um, put the, the pill on a string and don't allow it to go too quickly, that allows you to get better quality images. But you could use the same approach, albeit perhaps with different filters or a different sort of interrogation of the tissue, for anywhere that you could stick an endoscope. So would this work, for instance, for lung cancer? You could, yes. So you could look in the lung, you could look in the colon. Uh, It's very flexible and in principle we imagine that we would see similar sorts of contrast for very early cancers and there are similar challenges in those diseases as well. Cervical cancer as well, I mean that's a big problem. We're trying to do a lot of screening for that. Could it it work in the same way? Yeah, very much so. Sarah, thank you very much. It's incredibly exciting and, uh, and I can really see the, the value of that straight away. Great to have you with us. That's Sarah Bondike from the University of Cambridge. To the nervous system now. Nerves are specialised cells that carry information between the brain and spinal cord and the rest of your body, including your skin and muscles. They carry electrical signals that enable us to feel things and to move. But if we injure nerves, we can be left with permanent disabilities. I was injured in a road traffic accident in June 2004. I work in hospital, unable to move my left shoulder or forearm at all. I also found my right wrist and forearm in a full cast. I was left knowing it was nerve injury, but not knowing to what degree it would affect me. I was unable to care for myself or do anything. Over the course of nine months of outpatient appointments, my right wrist healed, but my left arm stayed completely paralysed down to my wrist. I am now able to hold my hand out in front of me and raise my forearm. However, my shoulder is and will remain paralysed. Ed Barnes, whose life was turned upside down after a motorcycle accident. When injuries like that happen, often to people's arms, sometimes the only way to repair a nerve or to restore its function is to remove a healthy segment of nerve tissue from another part of the body, usually the leg, and use this to patch up the damage. The injured nerve then regrows along the patched-in nerve tissue that guides it back to the skin or the area of muscle that it needs to supply. Now, of course, this is the neurological equivalent of robbing Peter to pay Paul because it leaves parts of the leg, or wherever you took the nerve from, lacking a nerve supply. Now, Becky Shipley from University College London is developing a modelling system to discover how best to grow new nerve graft tissue in a dish so that patients don't have to get a numb leg to restore functions in their arms and hands in the future. The gold standard at the moment for treating large gap peripheral nerve injuries is to graft one of these healthy sections of nerve from another part of the patient's body and implant it back into the gap between the severed ends of the injured nerve. Although that's the gold standard, there's obvious limitations to that in terms of having damage to a healthy nerve for the patient, a second surgery, and beyond that, that approach actually only restores full function to the damaged nerve in about 50% of cases. So instead, what we're trying to do 
is to engineer living replacement nerve tissues in the laboratory that we can then implant into the patient instead of using their own tissues. And that could be really powerful, both in terms of reducing the number of surgeries for that patient, but in also in how successful the nerve repair actually is. Why is it that this hasn't been done before? So in this area, there's been a huge amount of research that's done in labs across the UK and internationally that has explored a very broad range of different materials, so biomaterials and exciting new stem cell technologies, and tried to use them in combination to repair damaged nerves. But in a sense, um, it's almost been too successful. So now we're in the um, position where there are so many different options that it's hard to try and optimise them using physical experiments in isolation, as these experiments that we do in the labs are so expensive and time-consuming. So what we are trying to do instead is to use a combination of all of this exciting experimental work with computational modelling, so computer-based work as part of the design process to refine how we put together these tissues in the lab. Can you talk us through the process of growing this nerve tissue? You've got cells that you've taken from the patient. What else is in that mixture? In the most fundamental sense, you can think of it as a combination of cells and materials. So like you say, we have cells which can be from the patient themselves. Um, we combine them with what we call a matrix, which is actually a combination of, of different proteins. Um, and we put those together to make what we call a cellular gel. And it's like a piece of jelly. And that is essentially your living tissue. And what we do is we combine them in different ways and under different physical stimuli to be able to replicate the kind of mechanical and um, chemical environment that these cells would experience in the body. And it's that that will be bridging the gap that you can't otherwise bridge. Exactly. So that's what we create in the lab and that's what we would then implant into the repair site. What's really exciting about our approach is that by introducing the computational modelling, we have this whole new framework by which to streamline the design process. And so in the long term, we'll be reducing, significantly reducing the costs associated with engineering a really effective and transformative nerve repair solution. But as peripheral nerve surgeon Tom Quick points out, there are numerous other costs to having an operation. Theatre time is a very expensive resource and quite limited, but time to take these nerve grafts is quite considerable. But then the cost to the patient themselves of having lost that function, so having lost the sensation, having extra scars, there's an awful lot of work yet to be done on exactly the impact of having a scar on the leg when you're having your arm repaired and how these scars affect people's body perception and image of themselves. So cost, I think, can be looked at on a number of levels, not just financial. So what difference could growing a patient's nerve tissue outside the body instead of using this grafting process have for someone who's had a traumatic nerve injury? Certainly from my point of view as a surgeon, it would give me the ability to have greater options to help patients. A number of times we look to reconstruct nerve grafts and we don't have the ability to take enough tissue to reconstruct that as we would like. The ability to have a product that is entirely designed for the patient uh, to give us everything that we want from a nerve graft, from a tissue to fit a nerve gap would be amazing. The tissue that we use currently, and we say is a gold standard, we're actually using sensory nerves to reconstruct mainly motor tissue deficits. And we know that that isn't ideal. So we could design it better than what we have now and actually get the right cells to do the right job 
from the patient themselves. So it could open up a whole new area of clinical treatments. So is it fair to say that it might not necessarily be a difference between not being able to use your arm or being able to use your arm, but it could transform the way in which that is done and the consequences on other parts of the body? So we know from uh, clinical research at the moment that patients' assessment of outcome doesn't really relate directly to individual muscle responses, how how strong they are um, and how they recover, but it's a more a global appreciation of how their life has changed. And so what we're trying to do here is give us an awful lot more options to improve the patient experience. It may not make an arm normal. Many of the injuries are actually unreconstructable to bring it back to normal. A sort of um, Humpty Dumpty injury, you can't make it back to what it was before, but it will improve the overall experience of having a nerve injury. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? That was Surgeon Tom Quick from the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital and before him, Becky Shipley. She's at University College London. This week, we're looking at revolutions in healthcare that are waiting to happen. Still to come, how scientists are using wireless technology to control the electrical activity of cells. Plus, we dig up an answer to why so many people pick their noses. Charming. Uh, Before that, though, one of the most successful surgeries ever invented must be the total hip replacement. This replaces the ball and socket joint at the top of the leg with an artificial implant. It's performed in people with severe and debilitating hip arthritis. The downside is that these devices only have a limited lifespan before they wear out and need replacing themselves. And as people live longer and they remain active for longer, more and more patients are needing replacement hip replacements, which tend to be more complicated than performing the surgery the first time round. So is there a better approach? Well, Sophie Williams is a medical engineer. She's at the University of Leeds and she thinks the answer is yes. So, Sophie, first of all, how common is total hip replacement? So if we look at England and Wales, about 90,000 people are having hip replacements every year. But actually, if we look at the people who have hip osteoarthritis and may need one of these hip replacements, we're talking about 11% of over 45-year-olds. So very common, very, very frequently performed surgery, which as people live longer is going to become even more common. Absolutely, yes. And I mean, one of the the drivers for my research is actually about um, hip replacements, seeing what we can do to make those better. So only one is needed, but also about if we can go into these patients earlier on and we can make it so that they're less likely to need a hip replacement. But if someone's hip is worn out and they have arthritis, how can you avoid that happening? Well, we're starting to see increasing amounts of evidence that some people have hips that aren't quite as round, aren't quite as spherical as they should be. And they seem to be more likely of developing osteoarthritis. So this is a condition called femoroacetabular impingement. And already now, surgeons are going in earlier when patients present with with some early onset of pain. Um, and they will, will start looking at how they can make that hip more round again so the progression to osteoarthritis won't be as rapid. Right. So if you could intervene in these people and not do a complete hip replacement, but you do some kind of resurfacing or refashioning to the hip, you could potentially prevent the need for a hip replacement and you could do it in people earlier so that they wouldn't progress to full-blown arthritis. 
Yeah, that's exactly the case. Um, the thing is, at the moment, while the surgeons are very good at, at doing the surgery, they don't actually know, they don't really have the scientific evidence to tell them which bits of the bone they should be removing. So the, the problem with these hips when they're a funny shape is that they impinge. So if you imagine going into some sort of extreme of motion, and I'm not talking crazy gymnastics here, I'm just talking maybe leaning down to tie your shoelace, that will cause an impingement between sort of the outer round bit of your head and then the rim of the cup. And that outer round will start to cause some damage. So if we can give the surgeon sort of a roadmap of what they need to remove um, to make sure we don't get that impingement, then it's going to be better. How are you able to model what's going on in a person's hip then in order to give the surgeon that information? So for quite a lot of, lot of years now in our labs at the University of Leeds, we've had hip simulators. So these, effectively, we've been putting total hip replacements into them, which we'll continue to do. And we can load them and put them through sort of motion cycles. So previously, we've just tended to put things through walking cycles to see how they perform. But what I want to do in this grant is actually starting to take tissue that mimics the tissue in the human body and to go to extremes of motion to see when you get the damage so we can then make changes to the hip. Um, you know, as a surgeon would do and see if that actually in reality really does reduce the amount of damage that we get. Will you ultimately end up then with a computer model where you could take the scan of the individual, plug it into your computer model and it will then work out where all of the, the forces are travelling through their joint and when they were to move in certain positions when it's likely to impinge or wrinkle up the cartilage in the joint and therefore you, you could make predictions for the surgeon without actually having to lay a finger on the patient. Yeah, that's absolutely what we want to do. This is very much about sort of creating a, a bespoke um, sort of package for each individual patient because everyone's sort of got differently shaped pelvis, they move in different ways, etc. The bit we're missing at the moment is we don't actually know how the tissue physically behaves. So we need this physical experimental sort of simulator in the lab. We need to physically do it and cause this damage in the lab. And what have you got then? Something that resembles a hip joint, but it's sort of sitting with uh, mechanical devices attached to it so you can you can see exactly how it's being loaded when it gets moved around. Yeah, pretty much. Um, um, the exciting part of this grant is I'm going to be collaborating with some manufacturing engineers. So they're really good at coming up with smart materials that will mimic the materials that we have in the body. We can also um, put various sensors on that so we can look at the forces that are going through the hip. And then as the shape has changed, we can look at you know what causes this sort of optimum amounts of, of change and differences in that. Um, and we can actually start to use some tissue in the lab as well, some human tissue, and look at the changes that you get with that and the damage that's caused. So what will you do then, three-dimensional? print the structures so that you can get something which is really quite a precise and accurate representation of what's going on in a real hip. Yeah, that is what we'll do. So we can we can do that to sort of create the, the funny shape bits and then we can start to sort of change that shape and then we can use sort of natural tissue as well on the other side to see what damage that you get as you start to sort of apply those loads and motions. And you do think that the surgeon doing this kind of refashioning and resurfacing manoeuvre will be easier, less traumatic than doing a total hip replacement? Yeah, I think we'll still need total hip replacements, but it means that we can put them off and we won't need to use them in so many patients quite so early. Let's hope not. Thank you very much, Sophie. Pleasure to have you on the programme. That's Sophie Williams from the University of Leeds. We very much wish you luck. The human body is intrinsically electrical and almost every one of our cells generates a voltage across its cell membrane that's used by the cell to communicate with others which is what nerve cells do, or to carry out other important functions like pumping food into cells or pumping waste out. 
Now, as our knowledge of this field grows, scientists are realising that many diseases are actually associated with a disruption in these electrical processes. So, if we can reverse those changes, it might be possible to slow down some diseases. Or, on the other hand, if we exaggerate those changes, it might be possible to kill off harmful cells, like cancers. Frankie Rawson from Nottingham University is developing new ways to manipulate these electrical effects in the body. It's a field called electroceuticals. All your cells are electrically active in one form or the other. In your central nervous system, it's based on ion movement, but also cells shuttle individual electrons around, just like electrons moving in a copper wire that powers a light bulb. One thing to note is in disease, there's a malfunctioning in your electrical communication systems. What changes in those electrical signals is not very well understood, and we're starting to understand that, which means that we can now start to develop the technology to modulate that, to try and negate problems associated with disease. Bioelectric devices are already available, from the well-established pacemaker to the bionic eye that's not yet currently on the market. But these devices require invasive surgery to get them to where they're needed in the body, which has its drawbacks. Doing invasive surgery is not necessarily a good thing. One, it leads to chances of infection. Two, the electrical component doesn't necessarily last long, so it needs replacement. So if we can develop wireless tools, we can avoid the detrimental effects associated with invasive surgery. By exploiting the electrical conductivity of cells in the body, one of Frankie's aims is that these electrochemical-based wireless tools can be applied to treating diseases, including cancer. There's changes in the way that cancer move electrons around during the disease. So what we plan on doing and addressing is if you can control that electron transfer in those electrical communication systems in cancer, you can also halt cell proliferation or even induce cell death to actually kill the cancer and treat it. One way Frankie plans to control cancer cells' behaviour is by the use of conductive nanoparticles. A kind of conductive pill will be taken by the patient, spreading gold nanoparticles throughout the body. And then the ones that reach the cancer cells would be activated by an electromagnetic field being induced in a particular area of the body. We functionalise and synthesise these gold nanoparticles. We're terming them nanobombs. You put them inside the body, they're taken up by the cancer cell. You apply an external electric field and that electric field switches on that gold nanoparticle to induce cell death. Another proposal is to grow conductive wires within living tissue around cancer cells to enhance the effect of the electromagnetic field when it's targeted at the cancerous area. We plan on wirelessly growing conductive wires around cells. So when you, when you apply your external field, you get an enhancement of that uh, electrochemical effect. So how do you ensure that you're hitting the right area of the body with the electromagnetic field? As electrical conductivity is so wide-ranging, getting this wrong could pose serious problems. The reason that they have to implant electrical devices, so do that invasive surgery, is because they need that electrical device to be close to that area of the tissue that they're targeting. So the idea that we propose, and we've already got some preliminary data for this, to actually use additive manufacturing to build 3D electronics, which enable you to actually target the geometry of your electric field so you can target where that field is going into those tissues. So it gives you a degree of um, selectivity in terms of targeting a specific area. So besides cancer... Could there be other applications for this wireless electrochemical technology? There certainly are. It's extremely broad. So just to give you a flavour of 
where the state of the art is. So, of course, we've already mentioned the cochlear implant, the um, potential bionic eye. So that's that's controlling uh, neuro signals. But there's also the um, work by uh, Professor Kevin Tracy over in the Feinstein Institute of the States where he discovered there's a reflex arc that modulates um, your immune system. So there's a whole host of treatments now being currently developed for treating arthritis, gut inflammation using electronics. So there is certainly scope to treat a whole host of diseases. Frankie Rawson there from Nottingham University. And thank you also to our other guests this week, Sophie Williams, Tom Quick, Becky Shipley and Sarah Bondike. Now it's time for Question of the Week and Lewis Thompson has been rummaging around for an answer to Patrick's nose-picking problem. Why, oh why, am I unable to stop digging my nose? What is it that makes it so satisfying and addictive? Could there be an evolutionary reason for it? Also, why do some other people eat what comes out? Well, Patrick, you've really got us baffled by bogies. None of the behaviour or evolution experts we contacted wanted to touch such a sticky question. Luckily, Liverpool GP Dr Laura Wark knows a few things about noses. Our noses have two main functions. Firstly, to improve the quality of air we breathe in on its journey to our lungs, and secondly, to house receptors that provide our sense of smell. Air is filtered, humidified and warmed on its journey through the nose. Airborne particles are trapped by hairs and the paranasal sinuses produce mucus to keep the nasal cavity moist. Both of these contribute to the build-up of debris in the nose, or snot. (coughs) Okay, so now we know what the nose does. But what is it that makes Patrick so eager to go digging for gold? There isn't much research into why we pick our noses, but nose picking is common practice amongst most kids and adults. In a 1995 study of 254 people in Wisconsin, 91% admitted to being current nose pickers. Practical reasons may be relieving an itch or removing nasal obstructions, which can affect breathing and smell. However, as 12% of teenagers in an Indian study of adolescent nose pickers pointed out, many people do it just because it feels good. Although considered an habitual habit in most cases, similar to nail biting for example, extreme nose picking may be considered pathological if it becomes obsessive, a medical condition branded rhinotelexamania. And picking isn't without its risks. Overpicking can result in septal perforation and the nasal carriage of the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus is increased in those that enjoy a regular rummage. What about those people who love munching on their mucus? A Canadian biochemist has recently hypothesised that nasal mucus has a sweet taste which may encourage its owner to eat it, thereby introducing pathogens into the body and bolstering the immune system. However, this theory has been refuted by other scientists who point out that humans swallow around a litre of nasal secretions a day anyway, so snacking on snot wouldn't confer any additional benefit. Thanks, Laura. You really blew us away. Next week, we'll be tackling this rocket riddle from Anthony. Would a rocket launched from a tube, like a bullet from a rifle barrel, be uh, assisted or hindered by that? And if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, which is thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Well, sadly, that is all we have time for. But don't forget, you have about... 
10 days left to fill in our survey, nakedscientist.com slash survey. We do this every couple of years. It gives us enormously valuable information about what you think of our programme, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, and what we should be doing. And as an added incentive, we'll give you some Amazon vouchers if your name comes out of the hat after the 30th of November. Nakedscientist.com forward slash survey. Thank you to Katie for putting the programme together and do be sure to join us next week when the Naked Scientists are going on a quest to discover the science behind the process of ageing. We're asking, might diet hold the key to a long life? Until then, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.